A lot to give you from the weekend, the final weekend of softball regular season. In fact, it went down to the last day of the season to decide a champion. With UCF defeating Wichita State, we'll give you details of all the series and the bracket for the American Athletic Conference Tournament. As the man says, we always try and bring it back to USF, even though this is the quote-unquote non-Bulls-related show. We do relate it to the Bulls. In fact, obviously we're related to where they stand as far as the conference tournament goes. And the baseball team no longer stands or sits, I guess, in the cellar. Actually, that's something we didn't mention on Bulls Beat, but there's a little separation at the top of the standings, and that again goes to the Bulls because it's the team they're playing next. That'd be East Carolina. We'll also take a glimpse at the RPI when it comes to baseball. A couple of rosters that were definitely going to be undergoing some changes on the women's basketball side have been officially filled up, or at least most of the way filled up, specifically talking about UCF and Temple, two new coaches and two new rosters. We'll give you the details and we'll wrap up the show. With tennis and golf, it was not a great Friday for the American in men's tennis. Four teams made it, four teams lost, even though the matches were very competitive. And unfortunately, all four teams that beat the conference teams went on to lose their next round. We'll give you all those details along with some golf at the end. You know, Melanie Green from USF is playing in the Tallahassee Regional, which began today, but a couple other individuals from the conference along with UCF and Tulane. Let's start off with softball, and UCF is the champion for the first time since 2015. Lost the first game to Wichita State, had to win the next two, and did, and did so dramatically. The second game, the Saturday nighter, was in extra innings, and then on Sunday they finish off the deal on the last day of the regular season. It was Wichita State Senior Day, and the Knights get the win. First on Friday night, looked like they were going to win that one. As a matter of fact, had they won that one and gone on to sweep Wichita, then the Bulls would have been the second seed for the conference tournament. Instead, they're the three. But Wichita definitely deserved it because they went from being down 4 nothing to having a runner at third base with a run rule scenario. That's because they scored seven runs in the bottom of the six to defeat UCF 11-4. You figured there'd be some runs scored in this series. In fact, there were none scored until the top of the third inning on Friday, and that's when UCF got on the board for four of them. They were playing small ball at the beginning. There was a, a walk and a single, then a sack bunt, and then Jada Cody, go figure, RBI leader, wax one through the left side. They would tack on a pair more. Denali Schopacher had a triple, and Wichita State made a pitching change. And the Knights were looking good. They actually left the bases loaded in the top of the fourth, and that would come back to haunt them because Wichita State would tie the score in the bottom of the fifth against Gianna Mancha, Sidney McKinney, of course, one of the finalists, one of the ten finalists, along with Georgina Court for Division I Softball Player of the Year gets on. And then here comes Addison Barnard and Lauren Lucas, and you could tell Mancha was being very careful with them and walk them both. So the bases were loaded. They bring in Kama Woodall. She gets a force out at home. But then Naley Herring, opposite field, grand slam. And Wichita State has tied it up. Next time up, bottom of the sixth, a walk. Again, a bunt single as this is a tie game. Funny enough, they would score seven runs in an inning where they started off with a bunt single. Woodall would walk McKinney with the bases loaded. Again, you got to be careful with her. And then Barnard comes up. Bags are still juiced, two RBI singles. So Woodall had some serious issues. Now, she would get her revenge later, but in this game, she only got one person out. After that, two different pitchers come on for UCF, and barely, and I mean barely, did it go from being a 4-0 Knights lead to a walk-off 
Grand Slam run rule because Laura Mills hit one that looked like another opposite field slam at eight to four, ended up hitting about four feet from the top of the wall, cleared off the bases, and the final ends up being 11 to four. So the Shockers have absolutely all the momentum going into Saturday. And then what do you know, Woodall, the transfer from East Carolina, former Springstead Eagle, Goes eight innings and only gives up one run. On the other side, Wichita's pitcher did a good job too. Went the full eight, Caitlin Bingham. But two early runs was it. Shannon Doherty, who hadn't homered in more than a month since doing it against the Bulls, got the Knights on the board first. Wichita scratched one back in the third. Not a whole ton of chances to score, although UCF did have a runner get to third. With one out in the top of the seventh, they tried to bunt but it was well-fielded over at first base by Wichita scoop play to get the out. Then you had a strikeout, so the Shockers were flying high, and Woodall knocked them back. Then in the eighth inning, UCF took the lead. Kennedy Searcy, a big-time two-RBI hit, and UCF would get the win 3-1. to That game ended on a double play, so did the game on Sunday. That's how UCF ended up clinching its first conference championship in seven seasons. 9-5 to was the final. Again, it was a lower-scoring game. Wichita was up 2-1 to after three innings. McKinney and Lucas both with homers. But then Justine Molina, who only had a homer in each of her first four seasons in college, had two recently in one game against Houston. Hit a big one in this game. Three-run shot for the 4-2 lead. Knights would tack on, and then they would get five in the six. Ashley Griffin, a bases-clearing double. Mancha went the first five innings this time, did give up four runs. Woodall came on to pitch the last two innings. Gianna Mancha is 20-3 and three on the season after her team wins. Wichita did get a pinch hit homer from a freshman, Cassie Passwaters, but that just made it 9-5. to five. Wichita's numbers are incredible with Barnard and her 30 homers and McKinney with her 497 average, 13 homers. They have five players with double-digit homers, but again, Woodall held them down on Saturday and they kind of want to slugfest, so... UCF deserving the championship. They beat the Bulls with that sweep to start off conference play, and then they only lost one other game besides Friday to Wichita. They were, remember, up 7-1 to one and lost to Houston. But they're 16-2. and two. Wichita State ended up 14-4. and four. USF 12-5. and five. Remember, the Bulls did not play the final game against Tulsa. Houston, the fourth seed, 8-9-1. and one. They did not play this weekend. Worth noting, though, that remember how the Bulls, Georgina Corrick shut them out three games in a row? And then Houston turned around and beat Texas A&M in a doubleheader, 3-2 both times. Well, Friday, Texas A&M went on and beat fifth-ranked Arkansas in the first game of that series, although the Razorbacks would take the next two. So Houston probably a dangerous number four, especially considering they beat UCF. But Houston is not a lock to play them in the semifinals because Tulsa's on a nice little run, winning all three games over the weekend at East Carolina. Remember, Houston and Tulsa split their series. That's where the tie came in on a getaway day in that situation. But Tulsa started off its series against East Carolina with a 5-3 to win on Friday night. Imani Edwards' three-run homer gave him a 4 nothing lead. Pirates actually got it to a run before Tulsa put it away. Then run-ruled him on Saturday, 8 to nothing in five innings. A five-run second did the trick there. Haley Morgan hit a three-run homer. And then East Carolina really kind of, I guess, Finishes on a strong note in the last game, down 7-2, to two, scored four in the top of the seventh before Tulsa hangs on. And they did get those runs against Samantha Pocop, who's been really pitching fantastically for Tulsa. So keep that in mind. East Carolina got two two-run homers in the top of the seventh, and they carry that 
momentum maybe, hopefully not, into their next game, which happens to be against the Bulls. So before we tell you about the conference tournament bracket, the last player of the week honors Georgina Korik. Nine times this year was named the American Athletic Conference Pitcher of the Week, and Madison Epperson was the Player of the Week. We'll talk more about that, of course, tomorrow on Bulls Beat. The honor roll, UCF's Griffin and Woodall. Houston's Hannah Todd, who was 1-0 in two appearances in that midweek sweep of Texas A&M. And McKinney from Wichita State, who hit 600 for the weekend. So as the conference champ, regular season, UCF deservedly gets by with seven teams in the conference tourney. It'll be at the Max Joyner Family Stadium in Greenville, North Carolina. And yes, yours truly will be there. Originally, our game was supposed to be 2 o'clock just based on pure seedings and not teams. But as the bylaws of the conference states, the home team has the option of playing the last game on the first day, which means we'll be able to carry that game for you live. But let's give you the actual bracket. UCF gets a bye. We'll play the winner of the first game on Thursday between fourth-seeded Houston and fifth-seeded Tulsa. That'll be 11 a.m. USF's half of the bracket. Wichita State playing Memphis. That's the two versus the seven. That's a two o'clock game on Thursday. And then at five o'clock, it's USF, the three seed against the host and six seeded East Carolina. Friday, UCF gets the Houston Tulsa winner at one, followed at 3.30 by presumably USF Wichita, but their opponents will try and change that up. And then Saturday, it's scheduled for 11 a.m. It'll be shown on ESPN2. And of course, if USF is playing in it, we heard on USF Bulls Unlimited. But there's a caveat, as we're taping this, chance of rain slash thunderstorms all three days of, at the moment, at least 60%. I have a feeling that the schedule is kind of relative right now. I hope it's not a situation like we had back a few years ago in Houston where there was only one game played. Of course, that behooved the Bulls because they were the number one seed and got granted the conference championship. But you want the games to actually get in with us, I'll try and do both games. But if they're going on at the same time, that's going to... I don't know. That might just have to be a day-by-day decision kind of thing, honestly. But we'll be there. We'll be there in Greenville, North Carolina. The baseball team will be, too, playing, of course, the Pirates, who, oh, by the way, are by far now the number one seed. They have a two-game cushion with two weeks left in conference play. Now, Houston will be in Greenville for the end of the regular season, so that's the story around this weekend. Houston will probably try and get to within a game of East Carolina, meaning they would just have to win the series against the Pirates. If they stay two back, the only way to upseat them as the number one seed would be to sweep the Pirates. East Carolina just swept Memphis, while Houston won 2-3 in Wichita. Tulane, which was at one point in the running for a conference championship, has fallen out. They got beat twice by Cincinnati at home over the weekend. All of those games were close. As far as East Carolina and Memphis, definitely the wildest game, even though there were several of them. Hands down goes to what happened on Friday night. First of all, if you weren't tuned in during our baseball broadcast, that game actually started on time at 7, while the softball game with USF in the same city, in the same complex, didn't get started until 8.30 because the tarp management was not as good with the softball situation. But the softball game actually ended before the baseball game. Why? Because the baseball game went extra innings, but that's just the beginning of the story. You had two no-hitters going. Yes, East Carolina's C.J. Mayhew and Wichita State's Landon Gartman did not give up a hit. Gartman was pulled after eight. That's at the same time that the Memphis baseball Twitter page decided to let everybody know they were dueling no-hitters, and the first hitter against Dalton Kendrick for East Carolina got a double in the ninth. But no one scored in this game until the 13th. Mayhew did not give up a hit departed after nine 
and the first Memphis batter got a hit against their relief pitching, but East Carolina broke through for four runs in the top of the 13th and win it 4-1. to one. They did not wait nearly as long to score in the remaining games. They would... The Pirates beat Memphis 8-5 on Saturday, scoring a run in the first, two more in the second, and then a somewhat misleading 15-1 score in the final game. This was just a 4-1 game for East Carolina until it got 6 in the 8th, and then as Memphis had to resort to going with its third baseman, Logan Kohler, to pitch the ninth, the Pirates would get five more runs. So Houston is the only team within range, two back, and again, they'll be playing them at the end of the regular season. UCF is three behind the Pirates, thanks to the Bulls taking two from the Knights. Remember, East Carolina swept the Knights, so the only way for UCF to finish in first place is to basically pick up four games in two weekends. That's not going to happen. Houston took two of three at Wichita, winning the first game 7-4. to four. Shockers led 3 nothing early. Houston took the lead with the four-run sixth. Bases clearing double, big go-ahead hit by the freshman Malachi Lott, and then later on Ryan Hernandez would add a put-away two-run homer. Same combo that got the Bulls on Friday of last week, Jacob Deese and Ben Sears, who pitched two more innings. He is a future pro, got his 10th save. Then Wichita bops four homers against Houston in winning 12-4 on Saturday. Game was back and forth until the Shockers scored four in the bottom of the fourth. Chuck Ingram, their leadoff hitter, would drive in four in this game. Go ahead, three-run homer. Brock Rodden would add two homers. But in a slugfest in the finale, Houston wins 11-8. to Six runs in the top of the third. It was 8-4 to after three innings. Shockers actually got it to 8-7 to with three in the bottom of the fifth. But Houston had an immediate answer, three runs in the top of the sixth, and that was it until a lone run for the Shockers in the ninth. Oh, did I mention he's a future pro? Ben Sears got his 11th save by pitching four and a third innings and only throwing 44 pitches. Pretty impressive. And that's the thing, Houston up and down has a pretty strong staff. There's not that feared pitching staff in the conference, but when you get to the tourney, you want capable guys in mass, and of course he's a guy that can finish off a team. So I think Houston stands, even though it's not going to make the NCAA tournament as an at-large, as a legitimate chaser of the title. Something that Tulane was hoping to be, I'm talking about an at-large hopeful, but They lose two out of three at home to Cincinnati, the team that essentially dashed the Green Waves at large hopes last year, end of the regular season with the four-game sweep. All of these games were decided by one run. Cincinnati took the first one in 11 innings, was getting shut out until the eighth inning when Joe Powell tied it with a two-run hit. They would take the lead in stunning fashion. Two-lane reliever Tyler Hoffman He's got devastating stuff. He looked like he was on the verge of an inning-ending strikeout with the bases loaded, but just a little bit, but a slider low in the dirt, and Bennett Lee, the catcher, can't handle it. Griffin Merritt races home from third, and that's how Cincinnati got the win. But then the Green Wave wins 4-3 to on Saturday, and this time Tulane was up 4-1. to Bearcats get single runs in the sixth and in the seventh, but the Green Wave hold on as Brian Valagoski goes three innings for his first save of the year. And speaking of first saves, Garrett Harker, the kid that struggled and could not close out the Bulls, was struggling on Sunday but holds on. He gave up a two-run homer. It was 4-1 at one point, Cincinnati. Tulane scratched back but still down three going into the bottom of the ninth. Again, they have everything on the line needing to win this series. And they not only hit a two-run homer, but Tulane had a runner at third with one out. And Hawker gets two strikeouts to end it. Cincinnati is still a game behind Tulane, but 
The Green Wave falling to fourth in the conference really hurts them. And then the sixth spot belongs to the Bulls. For the first time since, well, getting in an 0-3 hole, the Bulls are not in last place or tied for the last spot as both Memphis and Wichita losing their series put them a game behind the Bulls. No surprise who the pitcher of the week was. It was the guy who threw nine hitless innings and allowed one batter over the minimum. East Carolina C.J. Mayhew. Again, he struck out nine, just one walk. Houston's Ryan Hernandez, the slugging first baseman, hit 467. That's with two homers and two doubles among his seven hits and six RBI. Was the player of the week. On a roll, the other guy in the no-hitter, Landon Gartman, the freshman from Memphis, although he's been in college for a few years, still technically a freshman. Eight hitless innings. Our own Jared Eaton will highlight that on tomorrow morning's Bulls beat. Brock Rodden of Wichita went seven for 15. He's been on a tear, had three homers and seven ribs. Also the guy who broke the 0-0 deadlock in the 13th for East Carolina, but also hit 500 for the week, Ben Newton on the honor roll, as was Cincinnati's Cole Harding. And an RPI check after the weekend's action has East Carolina looking good. The Pirates jumped 15 spots to 37. Unfortunately, the next highest ranked team is Tulane at 66. So we are looking at a one-bid league unless somebody besides East Carolina wins the conference tournament. We saw last year that can definitely happen. We mentioned a couple of women's basketball rosters needing to retool with Katie Abrahams and Henderson leaving UCF to coach the Georgia Bulldogs. UCF's new head coach, Satya Messer, announced four new members. They are Taylor Gibson, who played for, well, she played for Michigan, which was an Elite Eight team, but she played a total of three and a half minutes. Someone who played a few more minutes, in fact, more than 3,000 more, that would be Rachel Ranke. She is a 6'1 guard who spent four seasons at Kansas State, averaged nine points this past year, which actually was her lowest scoring average. She was around 10, 11 the first three seasons, known for three-point shooting, a career 230 and right around four rebounds per game. Someone who played in all 29 games as a freshman then saw her playing time reduced as a sophomore at Auburn, so transferred last year to Gulf Coast State College and was one of the biggest junior college scorer. In fact, led Juco in free throws total and fifth in points a game 20. That would be Morgan Robinson Wagu. She is a 5'8 guard. Definitely likes to post up and shoot the threes. And then the other person also productive for Georgia Southern, Maya Burns, a six-foot guard who averaged around 12 points and five rebounds last year and shot 79% from the free throw line. She was a former South Carolina State Player of the Year. With Tanya Cordoza out at Temple, Diane Richardson in from Towson, and six transfers announced on Friday, three of them from, you guessed it, Towson. One of them with Bay Area ties, Terriana Gary, who was a player on that Carrollwood Day School team that won the state championship, led Towson in three-point shooting while scoring around eight points a game. Another full-time starter who scored 16.5 points per game was their point guard with 170 assists. I'm guessing she'll be the new Temple point guard. Her name is Aaliyah Nelson. And then Rain Tucker, who I actually remember from James Madison, then at Towson last season, averaged around six points and five rebounds. They also added a player who scored a career-high 31 points for Northeastern against Towson. That would be five foot nine guard Kendall Currents, averaged 16 points per game. And from a smaller Division I program, UMass Lowell, but the leading scorer for UMass Lowell, Denise Solis, 6'1", she scored 11.5 points with six rebounds and started all 45 games for the Riverhawks over the last two seasons. Finally, one junior college player from Northwest Florida State College, six-foot forward Inez Piper. Only averaged 18 and a half minutes, so that's kind of a curious situation, a junior college player who only started 11 games. 
But hey, those are your new Temple Owls. Well, I guess I read that one wrong. The women's lacrosse field was announced on Monday, and the Gators get in as the number seven seed. They'll get to host a group of four teams. But remember I said the semifinal was big for Vanderbilt because Temple was a tournament team at Vanderbilt needed to win that game to possibly be a third from the conference. Well, turned out Vanderbilt beating Temple in overtime probably knocked Temple out of the field because the Owls are 21st in the RPI, but only 29 teams, not 32, 29, get into the women's lacrosse tournament, and Temple was not one of them. Florida plays Mercer later this week in Gainesville, and the other teams there in Gainesville will be Jacksonville and Stanford. So with 32 teams, you have a normal quarter of eight, and then the other three portions of the bracket have seven teams. The top three overall teams are getting buys in each of those respective regions. That's North Carolina, Maryland, and Boston College. You had six American Conference teams, four men's, two women's, make the NCAA tennis tournament, and only one won a match, and then it lost in the next round. That'd be UCF on the women's side. The ACC and the SEC dominated both Sweet 16 fields, with 10 of the 16 remaining on the women's side being from one of those top two conferences, nine in the case of the men's bracket. Actually, the Knights did beat an SEC foe, Alabama, in the first round and took the doubles point against Miami, ACC. The number nine-ranked Miami Hurricanes, though, were able to kind of smoke UCF at singles two, five, and six. Each of those straight set victories, including a 6-1 set, including both at the number six spot. The other three were competitive, but UCF, because again, they were decidedly out of those other three matches, were going to have to win all three. And indeed, we're going into a third set in two of them, but at the number one spot, after losing her first set in a tiebreaker, UCF's top player, Evgenia Levashova, who of course had to win the second set and the third, dropped the second set 6-1. Then again, they were kind of facing a similar situation in their first round win. Again, it came down to a tiebreaker. In the last doubles set, which was won by UCF, then Alabama had to beat them in four of the six singles matches. Now, to the Knights' credit, they won two of them handily, so they just needed to win one of the other four. And all four of them were either in or headed to a third set. At number three singles, Marie Mattel for UCF had won her first set. If she would have taken her second set tiebreaker, they clinched then. But Alabama won that, so now the Tide are in four third sets. But as that was happening, Nan Sharma was winning at the number five spot, 6-2 in her third set. So it was one of those 4 nothing wins that was a little bit closer than that makes it sound. But then again, it was a win, and it was the only win on that Friday for the American as Memphis making its second NCAA tournament ever, first since 2013 on the women's side, lost 4-1 to to Georgia Tech. Won one match from Camila Soares at number five singles, but Georgia Tech, six love, six one at the three spot, six one, six two at the four spot. The others were a lot more competitive, and who knows what happens if their number six player, Monique Woog, wins her first set tiebreaker, but Georgia Tech took it nine to seven. The other two matches, Memphis's Camila Romero won her first set. It was five all in the second. Their top player, Aran Garcia, lost her first set but was in a second set tiebreaker. So they were hanging around with Georgia Tech there in Auburn, Alabama, which actually looked even more impressive after what happened on Saturday as Georgia Tech pushed the host and 14 overall seed Auburn to the final match. 4-3 was that final score. So definitely a good year by Memphis. And again, they're the team that defeated the Bulls in the semifinals on the women's side. As far as the men went, like I said, 0-4 on Friday. Bulls were the only team that won the doubles point. 
SMU, which went you know ten and zero in the conference and seven and zero on the road, went to Austin, Texas, and lost to LSU. It went down to the wire four to three. In fact, the Mustangs were down three to one, tied it, but the final match obviously went LSU's way. LSU would turn around and really pushed twelfth ranked Texas, but ended up losing that one four to nothing. Tulsa went up against an SEC team, twenty fifth ranked Texas A and M, and lost four to one. They fell behind three to nothing. Got a win at number six singles. And then at number four, their Adam Gaber was in a tiebreaker. If he wins that, they've got two other matches going in a third set. But Texas A&M wins that tiebreaker. So that 4-1 final, definitely not as close as that one really was. And then, by the way, Texas A&M turned around and played the number three team in the country, Baylor. And that was a 4-2 final. Really an extremely close match. So turns out the conference uh, drew some pretty tough opponents. What do you know? Including the one that Memphis lost to, 21st ranked Duke. That final was 4-1. to one. Couple of tiebreakers if they go the other way again. But in the end, they did not go mostly the way of the teams from the American. One notable exception. Their one point for the Tigers against Duke came from Pablo Malaya. 6-4, He's the number four singles player. The freshman of the year in the conference went 19-0 and in singles. That's pretty incredible. Incidentally, Duke would turn around and take the doubles point from sixth-ranked Tennessee, but only forced one of the singles matches into a third set as the Vols would beat them 4-1. to And let's check in on how the conference did day one of the women's NCAA tournament. The two teams from the conference that made it, of course, as the highest-ranked team, UCF, and as the conference champion, Tulane. Now, 12 teams in each regional. The top five will advance to next week's championships. UCF, after day one, tied for eighth place, but only six shots out of fifth place. You're looking for that fifth spot for that matter. They're only nine behind the leader, Arkansas. And remember, if you don't advance as a team, but one of your players finishes in the top two scores as far as those that aren't on advancing teams, then they get to go to the NCAA finals as individuals. But no Knights right now are in the top 10 there in Ann Arbor. The other team, not off to a good start in Stillwater. Remember, Tulane put on a big comeback in the third round of the conference tournament. They're going to have to do it again to finish in the top five. They are 19 shots out of fifth place at 34 over par. For that matter, the person who won the American Athletic Conference individual medal, which got her into the NCAA tournament, is in 37th place. That's SMU's Kennedy Pedigo also playing there in Stillwater, where Tulsa's Lily Thomas also got selected, and she is just outside the top 20 at four over par, definitely in the running to advance as an individual because she's just a handful of shots off the pace in that regard. And the other individual to make it, unfortunately kind of a tough go for Annie Kim of Houston, but she's still got two rounds left, but her 10 over par was better than just two players in the entire field. She's playing in Franklin, Tennessee. Our own Melanie Green, of course, in Tallahassee. Five over, not her best first round, but definitely still in the running. We'll talk more about her on Bullsbeat. That's going to do it for this extended version of Around the American. Thanks for checking it out. I'm Derek Sharp.